This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have What Pearl Harbor Means to Me, the second episode of What Are We Fighting For, first broadcast on April 9th, 1942. This series was produced by CBS and sponsored by the U.S. War Department and recorded live at military bases around the country. This episode was recorded at Fort Meade in Maryland and features war correspondent Lee White. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So thanks for listening today, and enjoy this episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Our army is not only to be the best equipped and the best trained, but it is also to be the best informed army in the world. Our soldiers are to know what we are fighting for. To help them understand, outstanding Americans are appearing before the troops at Army posts throughout the nation, discussing the causes, issues, and strategy of the war. Each Thursday night at this time, for the next six weeks, the Columbia Network will visit an Army post to broadcast a portion of such a speech to American troops. You will hear in their appearances before troops, William L. Shire, Quentin Reynolds, Herbert Agar, and Sergeant Alvin C. York. Tonight we are at Camp George Meade in Maryland, with officers and soldiers now waiting. Colonel Oliver S. Wood, the commanding officer at Fort Meade, will introduce the speaker, Colonel Wood. <clears throat> officers and men at Fort Meade, and those listening by radio and army posts in the United States and overseas, tonight you are to hear a noted correspondent of the war. Many of you doubtless remember the broadcast of Lee White during the Balkan crisis and campaign. Those were tense, exciting, disastrous days. This correspondent was a victim of Nazi guns in the Yugoslavian campaign. He was among those evacuated at Crete and reached this country from Africa. Tonight, this wounded correspondent returned from the wars in Europe and the Mediterranean is practically recovered. We are happy to hear him speak tonight on the war to date, Mr. Lee White. It's strange that I should have been, of all correspondents, the one selected to talk to you about the war from Pearl Harbor to the present. For I was in Europe for five years and only managed to return to the United States on October 11th seven weeks before that fateful date. Since then, I have spent most of my time in the hospital, recovering from a wound I received in Greece a year ago. 
Until recently, I was shut off entirely from the outside world. Now I am addressing you here at Fort Meade, the first group of American soldiers I've set my eyes on since I returned to this country. I can't tell you much about America's war effort since Pearl Harbor, that is, the American phase of it. But I can tell you what our entry into the war since Pearl Harbor has meant to the majority of Europeans. As we all know, this war did not begin on December 7th, not even for Americans. This war began 10 years ago, in January 1932, when Japan invaded China. Three years later, in December 1934, Italy invaded Abyssinia. And the unwillingness of the great powers to apply sanctions destroyed the League of Nations. And whether we as Americans liked it or not, the League was the nearest approach the world has ever made to some international system of law and order. Without the authority of the League of Nations, law and order was gone, and Europe's decline toward anarchy began. The war for each one of us began at a different time, the moment when we personally became involved. For me, the war began in Spain. In July 1936, General Franco led his revolution against the government of the Spanish Republic. When it appeared that Franco could not win the war alone, Hitler and Mussolini helped him. Before the war was over in March 1939, most of the world had begun to realize that it was no civil war, no fight between nationalists and reds, as many people tried to make us believe, but a Nazi fascist invasion of a country whose government was very much like ours. China was 6,000 miles away. So was Abyssinia. Spain was much closer to home. Before the war in Spain was over, Hitler had taken Austria. Then he invaded Czechoslovakia, then Poland. And with the chronology of the war since then, we are all bitterly familiar. Every country which has been at war with Germany, Italy, and Japan, from China through Abyssinia and Spain, up to and including the United States, has been fighting for the same thing. Freedom. National freedom. I will not attempt to call freedom democracy, for they are not the same. Freedom breeds democracy. Democracy cannot exist without it. All of our allies in the present struggle are fighting for freedom of one sort or another. Some of them may not have been lucky enough to enjoy the sort of democracy we have here in America. Some of them may not have even been able to enjoy freedom. And without freedom, there is nothing. National freedom, liberty, independence must come first. Then all the other freedoms follow, one after the other, until democracy is finally achieved. So we are not fighting a war for democracy only. We are fighting a war for freedom, all sorts of freedom, and freedom is something more fundamental, more diverse. President Roosevelt, in a press conference last week, called for a new name for the Second World War. I suggest we call it the War for Freedom. That's what everybody's fighting for. Why try to complicate the issue by calling it something else? Why try to specify what we are fighting against? No war has ever been won against anything. All wars have been won for something. This war will be won for freedom. And December 7th, when America entered the war, was the first time it was possible for the rest of the world, and especially Europe, even to conceive that freedom was in sight. Without America, everything would have been lost, including America. With America, everything is possible. We haven't done much yet. We haven't had time. The American people, the American nation, is a gigantic organism. We are like the dinosaur. Somebody once investigated the nervous structure of the dinosaur and found that that animal was so sluggish that if he were hit over the head, 
It would take him several hours, or maybe it was days or weeks or months, to wake up to the fact that he had been hit. I think most of us here tonight know how hard hit we were at Pearl Harbor. But a lot of us, especially the civilians, are only just beginning to realize it. They will wake up. Before this war is over, everybody will be so waked up he will never be able to sleep again. And that is going to be a good thing. For until America gets excited about the future of the world, the world has no future. The future is ours. Pearl Harbor and what has happened since, for me, has been the beginning of the end of the war. The war that began in China ten years ago. This is a European point of view. But I have been living in Europe almost continuously for five years, and I have come to appreciate America as only Europeans can. I doubt if many Americans think of America in just that way. We are all so used to America here that we lose sight of what we mean to the rest of the world. The great influence that we have in countries some of us have never even heard of. The great hope we represent to the peoples of every other nation. As I say, this war began for me when I first arrived in Spain. And I have been living and breathing this war personally and professionally ever since. It's funny when I think of it. I was a pacifist back in 1937. Yet I went to the war in Spain and I've never been quite the same since. I learned there a lot of things from those soldiers who fought for 33 long months without airplanes, without artillery, without uniforms, most of them, against all the modern electrically fired batteries and bombers and machine guns of the Germans and the Italians. I was working for the Daily Express of London at that time. I used to visit the front-line trenches almost every day when a battle was going on, and every time I did, those ragged troops used to act, ask me, when is England going to help us? I knew, of course, that nobody was going to help them then. Sometimes I used to avoid the issue by saying, I'm not an Englishman, I'm just an American working for an English paper. Then those Spaniards would say, but when is America going to help us? America is a great democracy, too. Doesn't America, realizing we're, we're, realize we're fighting the war for America because we want to be like America? There used to be a, talk, a lot of talk about the part the Russians played in Spain. Russia was an ally of the Republic, just as Germany and Italy were the allies of the Spanish fascists. That made the Spanish Republicans reds, though for some reason it never made the Spanish fascists fascists. By the same token, we Americans would be reds today merely because Russia is our ally. The Spanish Republicans were not Russians. They were merely Spaniards fighting for their national freedom. They admired Russia for helping them, just as we admire Russia for the fight she is putting up against our common enemies today. But those Spaniards admired America more than they ever admired Russia. And they admired us even when we did not help them. And that's a greater tribute. All of my Spanish friends, no matter what they call themselves politically, were so full of admiration for America that I began to admire us too. I never really appreciated America until I went to Spain. I never realized what the word America meant to most Europeans. Since then, I have lived in France, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, and Greece. And everywhere it was the same. America, not Russia, not Germany, not any other country. America was the hope of the world. I remember a certain day in Budapest, Hungary, a country which is now one of our enemies. The day was November 4th, 1940. Mr. Roosevelt had just been re-elected president of the United States. The people in Budapest were probably more excited about the outcome of the election than most of us back home. It was embarrassing for me. Everywhere I went, in the cafes where I was known, not by name, of course, merely as an American correspondent, the people literally cheered and applauded me because I was an American. Some of them even had the daring to call out, Long live America, long live Roosevelt. 
What I'm not trying to emphasize is not that Mr. Roosevelt defeated Mr. Wilkie. That's not important, and anyway, I admire Mr. Wilkie just as much as the president does himself. What I'm trying to emphasize is that in Nazi-dominated Budapest, despite the censored press that painted Mr. Roosevelt as an ogre, despite the spies of the Gestapo and the police, the people dared to cheer America because they felt that only America could save them. I shall never forget another day in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, a country which is one of our loyalist allies in this war. That day was March 27, 1941. The fascist government of Premier Tsvetkovich, the man who would have sold Yugoslavia to Hitler, had just been overthrown. General Simovich, the present prime minister, had just led a successful coup d'etat and installed King Peter on the throne. The people were overcome with joy. For weeks they had been wearing the Union Jack and the stars and stripes in their lapels and playing Tipperary against the laws of their government and in the faces of the German tourists. There was a patriotic demonstration that day, but beside the Yugoslav flag, those patriots voluntarily and without asking anyone's permission raised the English flag on one side and the American flag on the other. This later proved somewhat embarrassing to the State Department, but the important fact is this. The Yugoslavs, as they consciously and willingly committed national suicide, went down waving the American flag with their own. In Greece, I was wounded by a Nazi bomber. For four and a half months, I was cared for in a hospital in Athens. The Greek doctors and nurses treated me better than they treated any of the wounded Greeks, merely because I was an American. Some days, I only had a single potato to eat. The people were starving. But if I had one potato to eat, that was one half of a potato more than the others had. Before I left Athens, the Greek doctor who had been treating me said, don't forget to tell them back in America about us. We're still your allies, and we need your help. That was last September. My Greek doctor was referring to us as his allies, and we had not even entered the war. There you have America's responsibility. Unconsciously or not, we have been an example and a hope for the rest of the world. That is what Pearl Harbor means to me. That is what Pearl Harbor means to all Americans, all who have been in Europe, and to all Europeans. Pearl Harbor means that America has entered the war and will win the war, and that America will mold the future of the world. We have sustained several great defeats since then, defeats such as we had never sustained before. But they will be amply repaid as soon as our army and our war production grows. But meanwhile, these defeats should give us calm. Isolationists, though many of us were, we were also cocky. The mistakes the English made and the defeats they sustained could never happen to us, we thought. Now we know that they can. Now we know that anything can happen. The Germans and the Japanese have broken every established military cannon. They smashed through the impregnable Maginot Line. They broke through the impassable mountains of Greece and Yugoslavia. And they invaded Crete without a navy because they had an air force. So the Japs have broken all the rules. They have extended their lines of communication without regard for safety. They have shown us that anything and everything is possible. And that should give us confidence. For we have everything the Japanese and the Germans have, and more. We have ourselves in the first place, and secondly, we have all the rest of the world on our side, waiting for the day when they can welcome our troops, waiting for the day when, with our help, they can at last do what they've always wanted to do, make their own American revolutions. From Fort George and Meade, Maryland, the War Department and the Columbia Network have broadcast another talk to American soldiers everywhere 
designed to tell them why and who we are fighting. Lee White, Columbia's correspondent injured in Greece, was today's speaker. Next week, William L. Shire will be heard from Fort Belvoir. He will speak on the subject, Your Enemies, the Fact.